All right, everyone, I would like to ask you, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Last time we left off in 1 Samuel, the Israelites were in the midst of an international conflict with the Philistines. After losing 4,000 men in battle, they put their heads together and they came up with a plan. They knew that they had given, been given over to defeat by the Lord, so they decided they needed the Lord's help. But they didn't understand why the Lord had given them over, so they decided if God wasn't going to fight for them, they were going to force his hand by forcing him onto the battlefield by taking the Ark of the Covenant directly into a war zone. So they said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and that it may save us from our enemies. Now initially, the people of Israel rallied a cry of joy so loud that it terrified the Philistines. And when the Philistines heard that the ark had arrived, they feared because they said, a God has entered into their camp, and this has never happened before. And it caused the Israelites to think that they were going to win, and it caused the Philistines to fight tooth and nail, and the Philistines defeated the Israelites that day. And in our text that we're going to consider this morning, we're going to look at the aftermath of the devastation. But for the sake of refreshing our memory, wanted to just share with you those things. Please follow along in your own copy of Scripture. We're going to begin today in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 12. And this is God's perfect holy word preserved for us. God's word says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead... She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about, that time of her. and about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Lord, today as we look at this very dark passage in 
1 Samuel chapter 4. We ask, Lord, that you would help it to open our eyes, cause us to see Jesus more clearly, even as we look into the depths of this difficult and horrific moment in Israel's past. We pray, Lord, that just as you promised that your word would be active today, living, that it would be sharper than any two-edged sword and that it would cut between bone and marrow and soul and spirit, that it would get to the very deepest parts of who we are and cause us to be transformed. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Our outline today, as we consider this passage, is a little different than what we normally do. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at this chapter like a multi-sided jewel, just like any precious gem that has been cut by someone who has professionally designed it. It has many different angles, and as you look into the different angles, it will reveal different things to you. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at five different angles of this chapter. The battle, the messenger, the priest, the newborn, and the glory. And then we're going to flip it over, and we're going to look at the gem once again in a new direction. Let's begin with the first angle, which is the battle. I think it's easy for us, especially as people so far removed geographically and temporally from these individuals, it's easy for us to read about this massive loss of life and just pass over it as if it's nothing. But you can't grasp the conclusion of the chapter. You can't understand any of the things that I just read without at least attempting to feel the weight of ruin that they felt that day. It's almost impossible for me to express the devastating losses that were experienced by the Israelites in this particular battle. This was not only the most devastating loss that they had ever experienced since they entered the land of Canaan. This was the most deadly battle that they would ever encounter until the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom roughly 500 years later. 40,000 men were killed that day. Now that would be a massive defeat for any army at any time in history. Gettysburg, for example, the most famous battle from the American Civil War, claims the loss of roughly 50,000 soldiers. But that took place over three days, and it took place on both sides. Here, we're only given the Israelites' losses, and that was 40,000. Consider also that Israel was much smaller than our nation is. If you were to scale them up to our current population, this would be like our country going to battle and in one day losing 14,460,000 people. This not only ranks as the most horrible loss of life in Old Testament Israel's history, it also ranks among the most devastating single-day battles in any place in history. This truly was one of the saddest days in all of Old Testament Israel's history. They had marched into battle confident that God was on their side, as we learned about last time we were in this book, and they left the field mostly in body bags. Angle number two, consider the messenger. There's a famous story that was recorded by multiple ancient historians, although the details are a little fuzzy and probably a little bit embellished. There's a story of what happened when the Persians attacked the Greeks, and they took them over and were trying to fight them in a city called Marathon. When the Greeks had won, they saw a Persian ship escaping, and they saw that it was heading in the direction of Athens, and they knew what was going to happen If those Persians reached Athens first, they would lie and they would say that the Persians had won and then Athens might relent. 
and they might allow Greece to be given over into the Persians' hands. And so, one man, Philippides by name, ran for two days, roughly 240 kilometers, to tell the Athenians they had not lost. The Battle of Marathon had been won. And it said that he left all of his weapons and that as he ran, he even ended up taking off all of his clothes because he thought that it was slowing him down. And when he finally reached Athens, he went right into the council chambers. He burst in and he announced, we have won. And then according to the story, he fell down and he died. And now, every year, hundreds of thousands of people all around the world run a marathon to celebrate the preservation of Western civilization. Now, it's challenging for people who live in the information age to understand the concept of what it must have been like to wait for days for news to arrive. People would send their best and their brightest off to war, and then they just sat there waiting for the results. There was no way to check the score at halftime on your phone. Verse 12 says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. His clothes may have been torn in battle. We don't know. We don't know exactly why that happened. They may have been torn from him running. But it's also possible that he himself tore his clothing because that was a historic symbol of mourning and loss. And it's highly likely that that's the case because it's paired with the fact that he had put dirt on his head. In the ancient Near East, placing dirt or ashes on your head was a way of displaying immense loss or suffering or mourning. And it's possible that he had done this as an outward example or a symbol so that everyone that he ran past, everyone that he did not stop to talk about, would be able to look at him and see, this is a messenger carrying bad news. This messenger ran with a heavy heart, knowing that the news he was about to deliver was going to crush the people who received it. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Now we're going to turn our attention to Eli in a moment. But for now, I want you to consider the horrific responsibility of the messenger. Walking into that city, walking into Shiloh that day, and having to announce, we have lost. Having to look mothers and wives and children in the eye and say that your father is likely dead. Your husband is likely dead. Your son is likely dead because of the brutal warfare and the losses that we've experienced. The response of the city was to raise a cry so loud that it could easily be heard by Eli well outside the city walls. Angle three, the priest when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Now I believe we have a member of our church who turned 98 yesterday. Is that correct? 98 yesterday. I was out of town. I'm sorry that I missed that. But Charlie, 98, our oldest member, unable to be here with us today. But praise God for that. Yeah. Eli was an elderly man. He was not going to get up and move very quickly. He was sitting outside of the wall. He had his eyes trained on the horizon. He was looking for a messenger. Somehow the messenger got around him. He probably went in the other side of the city. Usually cities had a gate on either end. 
And so he had missed the messenger, and the messenger had gone in and given the message, and he was the last one to know what had happened. And because he likely had macular degeneration, it rendered him nearly blind, and he couldn't easily move toward the outcry. So he began calling out for the messenger, you come here, what is going on? Tell me what is happening. And the man said to Eli, verse 16, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? Now, I really wonder what was going on in Eli's mind and in his heart when he asks this question. And I really wish we could hear the tone of his voice. Because remember, he had been told by the prophecies of Samuel, Samuel and by the Lord himself that a day was going to come that wiped him out along with his sons because of their wickedness. And I wonder if he had lived every day since that message was given to him in perpetual fear that his judgment had finally arrived. And I, I also assume that when he heard the weeping and the wailing and the cries of the people on the other side of that city gate, that he probably already knew, knew that this was bad news. Verse 17, He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now consider the way that this news declines from bad to worse. First, Israel has retreated. Secondly, they were defeated. Third, Eli's sons have been killed. And most tragically of all, the ark was captured. Now perhaps you notice that back in 13, it didn't even say that Eli was waiting to hear about his sons. It's possible that, although parents always love their children, it's possible that their continuation of sin had made a wedge between them in, their, in his older days. But it says that he was looking out, watching for the ark. He wanted to knew, know about what happened with the ark. And for the last 40 years, his job had been to care for that and to make sure that the ark was at the center of worship and sacrifice for the entire nation. And of course, he didn't do that properly, but that was his responsibility. And in his own foolish hubris, his sons had dragged that ark out into the battlefield. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, this should have been expected on some level. The Lord had told Eli directly in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 34, This shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be the sign to you that both of them shall die in one day. And remember the prophecy that the Lord had delivered in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So this should have been somewhat expected. And every day that Eli got older, he must have known the day is much more rapidly approaching. Just as God had promised in chapters 2 and 3, Eli died along with his sons that day. 
The priest died under the weight of his own body moments after receiving the worst news of his life. Angle four, consider the newborn. The devastation of war is never limited to the casualties of the battlefield. The suffering continues on in the lives of the people who are left behind. War's enduring legacy is to leave a trail of widows and orphans. Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. Now this poor woman was so devastated that she literally gave up on life. When you have a child, that's one of the most exciting, exhilarating, beautiful moments of your life. And think of Hannah, just a couple chapters earlier, who desired so deeply and powerfully to have a baby, and finally she was given this child and she was rejoicing. And now this woman is being showed her own child, and she won't even acknowledge it exists. She cannot be consoled. She doesn't care about anything in life anymore. In her mind, everything was lost. As we often see in the Old Testament times, children were named based upon what was going on during the circumstances of their birth. Samuel was named Samuel because it means asked and because Hannah had asked for him from the Lord. Well, this little boy's name was Ichabod because it means the glory has departed. And she said the glory of the Lord has departed. Now, for the rest of his life, every single time somebody spoke his name, it was to serve as a reminder that the manifest presence of God was no longer dwelling amongst the people of Israel. The glory of God has departed, Ichabod. And now, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli, the unnamed widow, as far as they knew, it was never coming back. The glory of God has departed. Angle five, consider the glory. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for or because the ark of God has been captured. What is glory? Well, the literal word glory is the same as the word weight in Hebrew. It means heaviness. So here we see a little play on words in the text that is taking place where Eli, this wicked man, was more concerned with his own glory than he was with the glory of God all throughout his life and then eventually was crushed under his own weight. Eli died under the weight of his own glory. But being described as being heavy or weighty still doesn't tell us what glory is. I like John Piper's definition. He says that the glory of God is the going public of God's holy perfection. It is the making known of God's holy perfection. God does not change in terms of his level of holiness or in his level of worth. But what does change is how much people acknowledge it, how much people see it, how much people are capable of having their eyes open to the incredible beauty of our God. Hophni and Phinehas were robbing God of his glory by making a mockery of the sacrifices that the Lord had ordained. And that is why he eventually had them killed. Eli was robbing God of his glory by refusing to correct 
his own son's blasphemy. The nation of Israel as a whole was robbing God of his glory by believing that they could manipulate God into fighting on their behalf by sending a box onto the battlefield. The glory of the Lord certainly had departed from Israel, but not because the ark had been captured. The glory departed when the people stopped thinking of God as God and started thinking of him as some kind of power that they could manipulate or control. God's glory was gone from Israel. The people that were supposed to shine brightly and reveal his glory to all the world instead became just like the other nations, and the glory of God was completely veiled. This truly is one of the darkest chapters in the entire book of 1 Samuel, indeed in the entire Old Testament. It's a story of judgment and sorrow and loss and death. But for the next few minutes, what I'd like to do is I'd like to flip that jewel over and look at those same five angles again, but this time looking back through the lens of the New Testament. Let's take them in reverse order, starting with glory. John Woodhouse makes a very compelling argument in his commentary on 1 Samuel that says this chapter serves as a small, condensed picture of the entire history of Israel. Over time, the people rejected God and they turned him into a token deity that they felt they could use when and however they felt was convenient for them. And in doing so, the glory of the Lord departed from them. And then we arrive at the dawning of good news. God the Father sent God the Son to take on human flesh and to dwell among us. And into the darkness of night, the Lord did something amazing on the hillsides just outside of Bethlehem, into a land that had not experienced the glory of God for centuries. We see God's glory once again arrive. We read in Luke 2.9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Just a few verses later, the entire sky was filled with the warriors of the armies of heaven who joined to sing a battle song of God's plan, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's the mission statement of the life of Jesus. And that very night in Bethlehem, Jesus was born, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. John says, we have seen His glory. The glory that had departed from Israel has now returned in the person, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. Angle number four, consider the newborn. Just like Ichabod was named based upon the circumstances of his birth, so also was Jesus given a name fitting of the events of his arrival. He does not just have one name, he has many. Let's consider a few. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, an angel told Joseph what to call the child when he arrived. He said of Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Jesus, the name Jesus, literally means Yahweh saves. Do you see the incredible proclamation that the angel just made? The angel did not say, you shall name him Yahweh because Yahweh will use him to save his people. No, no, no. He said, you shall call him Yahweh because, or Jesus because Jesus means Yahweh saves and he will save his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus is Yahweh. This child that is going to be born is the Lord. Even in this declaration, the angel was acknowledging that this was no ordinary child. He would be fully man, but also fully God as well. 
He is Yahweh who came to save their people from their sins. Two verses later in the same book, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people were attempting to manufacture a way to get God to be on their side, to take God with them into battle. We need God with us. And of course, their plans did not work. They wanted to manipulate God in coming to battle with them. But Emmanuel, which literally means that God has come to dwell with us, is the name of Jesus. We didn't convince him to do it. But in love, God the Father sent God the Son to dwell amongst us in order to save us. Isaiah prophesied about this newborn in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, meaning Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. These are the names of our king. These are just some of the titles given to that newborn who sparked the renewal of God's glory going out throughout the earth. Consider angle number three, the priest. You see, unlike Eli, Jesus was perfectly concerned with proper worship. Unlike Hophni and Phinehas, he was without stain. He was without spot. He was without blemish in his conduct. Unlike the people of Israel, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. So he should never suffer the same fate that those Israelites on the battlefield experienced. He should never suffer the same fate as Hophni or Phinehas. He should never suffer the same fate of Eli. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is worthy because he is our great high priest, worthy of glory. Angle two, the messenger. In Luke 4, 18 we read about Jesus' first sermon that he preached in his own hometown of Nazareth. He went to the synagogue and he read from Isaiah the following words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind and liberty set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah had said those words 740 years earlier. And Jesus said, This is about me. I am the messenger. I am the herald who brings good news. Jesus came to preach good news. He did not have a message to carry like the messenger in 1 Samuel 4. He carried a message of victory. He carried a message of healing, a message of liberty from the oppression of sin and of favor with God. This is good news. If you spend any amount of time here at Levittown Baptist, you're going to hear us throw around the word gospel a lot. We use that word a great deal, and that's for good reason. 
That word comes straight out of the Bible, and it simply means good news. Jesus came to be the bearer of good news. He is the better messenger. And what is that good news? That brings us to angle number one, the battle. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the most condensed explanation of the gospel in the entire Bible. It is, according to Paul, the thing in our lives which is to have first importance. It is the simple message of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. But what's his death all about? You see, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they all died because the judgment of God fell on them for their own sins. They died because they deserved it. Jesus also died under the weight of God's judgment for sins, but not his own. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, Jesus fought a war, but not a physical fight. In fact, he told Peter, put away your sword. He who lives by the sword dies by it. The war that Jesus fought was a spiritual battle, a battle against sin and death itself. Consider that song that we just sang earlier today, that Jesus is our warrior. He is the one that fought on our side. Up to the hill of Calvary, my Savior went courageously, and there he bled and died for me. Hallelujah for the cross. That is the war that he fought. Jesus could not be defeated by death. Acts chapter 2 verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's a battle that he could definitely not lose. To close, let me shift the angle on this jewel one more time and just consider three closing applications that are drawn directly from what we have seen. First, let's consider the newborn. See, the Bible actually tells us that everybody who's going to heaven is going to be there because they have been born again, and that we are given a name in Christ, child of God. Now, if you're here and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, if you have not been born again, then you need to know that you stand under the judgment just like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. All of us are deserving of that, but there is good news that we all, by the grace of God, have opportunity to hear that good news, and if you believe it, you will be saved. You will be born again, or as John 3 describes it, you will be born from above. So if you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I call on you to trust in him today, to follow him. Trust that he forgives your sin, and then you will be saved. You will be newborn, and you will have a new name, child of God. The second thing I want you to see is messenger. Brothers and sisters, that message that Jesus came to bring, that good news that he came to preach, that is the same good news we get to carry every day. You are a messenger. That is your job. As a Christian, you are called to go into the world and carry that same good news and deliver it. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they? even him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach or proclaim the good news the messenger that walked into Shiloh what a miserable job 
What a miserable thing to carry the weight of that burden and to walk into that town and to tell each and every one of those people, we've lost. It must have been a hard thing to even get the words out as he announced the message of death and devastation. But brothers and sisters, we have a good message to give. We carry a message of freedom and a message of forgiveness, and that should cause us to fervently run like the Greek man who ran to Athens, like that marathon runner, run and tell the world Jesus won. Tell the world that they too can have life if they will simply trust in him. Carry that good news as far and as faithfully as you can. Application number three, very simple, final point, but very important. This chapter is all about glory. And you need to know that in your life, believer, that you can either promote God's glory or you can rob him of his glory. Now, I'll simply leave you with Paul's admonishment from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Take inventory of your life. What do you do and why do you do it? Consider the things that you spend your time and your emotional energy on and consider what do you do and why do you do it? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, I just ask that in all of these things, as we've looked at this dark moment in Israel's history, that you would show us that in the face of that darkness, there is a great light that Jesus Christ has come to be the light, the radiance of the glory of God. Lord, I just pray that each and every person in this room would see that glory, beholding his glory, and in doing so that we would be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.